Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, as the war in Ukraine officially enters its second year, divisions between the competing global alliances are getting even sharper. Are we heading into a new Cold War? We spoke exclusively with CIA Director Bill Burns at the CIA on Friday. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice will give us her worldview and will talk with the chairs of a new congressional committee created to investigate threats to the U.S. from the Chinese Communist Party. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning. Welcome to Face the Nation. It was a high-stakes week on the foreign policy front. President Biden took a daring, top-secret trip to Kyiv to mark one year of the war in Ukraine. Chinese President Xi moved closer to Russian President Putin, while the U.S., NATO, and most of Western Europe doubled down in their support for Ukraine. On Friday, we traveled to CIA headquarters in nearby Langley, Virginia, where we sat down with CIA Director Bill Burns. Here's part of our conversation. On the cusp of Russia's invasion, you flew to Kyiv mm -hmm. and you told President Zelensky, tell me if this is right, the Russians are coming to kill you. Was that the very first thing you said? It wasn't the very first thing I said to President Zelensky, but President Biden had asked me to go to Kyiv uh, to lay out for President Zelensky the most recent intelligence we had, which suggested that what Vladimir Putin was planning was what he thought would be a lightning strike from the Belarus border to seize Kyiv in a matter of a few days, and also to seize an airport just northwest of Kyiv called Gostomel which he wanted to use as a platform to bring in airborne, airborne troops as a way, again, of accelerating
beginning of that lightning conquest of Kyiv. And I think President Zelensky understood what was at stake and what he was up against. You also have said, um, and tell me if this is correct, that it was only a group of about three or four people around Vladimir Putin who knew that he was actually planning this invasion. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's true. Putin had narrowed his circle of advisors, uh, and it was a circle in which he prized uh, loyalty over competence. It was a group of people who tended to tell him what he wanted to hear. That was one of the deepest flaws, I think, in Russian decision-making just before the war, as it was such a closed circle of people reinforcing one another's profoundly mistaken assumptions. Does he take counsel from anyone these days? I think he's become increasingly convinced that he knows better than anyone else what's at stake for Russia. I think his sense of destiny um, and his appetite for risk has increased in recent years as well. You recently went back to Kiev and you met with President Zelensky. Mm -hmm. um, and three months ago, I understand you met with Russia's top spy chief. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of opening that you are finding here? Any kind of opportunity? No, I mean, the, the conversation that I had with Sergei Naryshkin, the head of Russia's external intelligence service, was pretty dispiriting. My goal was not to talk about negotiations. That's something the Ukrainians are going to need to take up with the Russians when they see fit. It was to make clear to Naryshkin and through him to President Putin the serious consequences should Russia ever choose to use a nuclear weapon of any kind as well. And I think Naryshkin understood the seriousness of that issue. Um, and I think President Putin has understood it as well. There's not a lot of contact with Russia right now. There's not a great deal, you're right. But you still have that line of communication with yeah, your Yeah, and I, and I think even in the most deeply adversarial relationships, and that's certainly what our relationship with Russia is today, it's important to have those lines open. And the president believes that. What do you walk away from those conversations with? You said it was dispiriting. Mm -hmm. Why? There was a very defiant attitude on the part of Mr. Narishkin as well, um, a sense of cockiness and hubris, reflecting Putin's own view, his own belief today that he can make time work for him, that he believes he can grind down the Ukrainians, that he can wear down our European allies, that political fatigue will eventually set in. And in my experience, Putin's view of Americans, of us, has been that we have attention deficit disorder and we'll move on to some other issue eventually. Um, and so Putin, in many ways, I think, believes today that he cannot win for a while, but he can't afford to lose. He doesn't seem to have that assessment, though. I mean, 97% of his ground forces in Ukraine, right. it's a meat grinder. Does he just look at his population and say, I have enough young men I can continue to send off to die. I mean, he's, what is the price that makes him change his mind? Putin is certainly not a sentimentalist about the loss of Russian life or, you know, the huge losses that he's taken in terms of Russian armaments as well during the course of the war. Um, but there's a lot of hubris that continues to be attached to Putin and his view of the war right now. And I think what's going to be critical is to puncture that hubris on Putin's part and regain momentum on the battlefield. I don't think the Russians are serious today. And I think, you know, it's only progress on the battlefield that's going to shape any improved prospects for negotiations down the road. At what point does Putin say, 
I can't win. I think Putin is uh, right now entirely too confident of his ability to wear down mm -hmm. um, Ukraine, to grind away, and that's what he's giving every evidence that he's determined to do right now. At some point, he's going to have to face up to increasing costs as well. In coffins coming home to some of the poorest parts of Russia, there's a cumulative economic damage to Russia as well. Huge reputational damage. It's not exactly been a great advertisement for Russian arms sales. Right. So this is going to build over time. But right now, the honest answer, I think, Putin is quite determined. I want to ask you about what appears to be potentially a new line of ammunition and weapons for Russia. Mm -hmm. Secretary Blinken has said publicly, you know, we have begun to see, uh, we have begun to collect intelligence suggesting that China is considering the provision of lethal equipment. That's not to suggest that they've made a definitive conclusion about this. Secretary Blinken said that the U.S. had picked up information over the last couple of months. Mm -hmm. But picking up information over the last couple of months to thinking they're considering it. Mm -hmm. I mean, how confident are you in the intelligence that this is something Xi Jinping himself may change his mind about? Well, we're confident that the Chinese leadership is considering the provision of lethal equipment. We also don't see that a final decision has been made yet, and we don't see evidence of actual shipments of lethal equipment. Uh, and that's why I think Secretary Blinken and the president have thought it important to make very clear what the consequences of that would be as to well. To deter it. Yeah, to deter it, because it would be a very risky and unwise bet. So why would Beijing risk a tailspin in its relationship with the United States and with Europe by crossing this line? It's a good question, and that's why I hope very much that they don't. Do you think that Beijing benefits from having the West distracted and involved in a prolonged conflict in Europe. I Th mean, that's the aim. It's conceivable, but I, I think there's no foreign leader who's watched more carefully Vladimir Putin's experience in Ukraine, the evolution of the war, than Xi Jinping has. What are the consequences um, for the conflict in Ukraine if this does happen? What does more ammunition and more weapons mean? Does this is it a game changer? We also have evidence that the Iranians are providing, you know, lethal equipment and munitions, that the North Koreans are doing the same thing as well. So wherever that lethal assistance comes from, it prolongs a vicious war of aggression. How good is our visibility into Xi Jinping's thinking and his decision-making process? Oh, it's always the hardest question for any intelligence service as well. You know, in, a, in an authoritarian system where power is consolidated so much um, in the hands of one man. But you had such exquisite intelligence when it came to Russia and mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin and his inner circle. Mm -hmm. Do we have that for Xi Jinping? Oh, we work very hard to develop that. Working on it. Um, I think we work very hard to develop the very best intelligence we can. Uh, but I wonder if, when you're talking about his thinking and his decision-making, if he suffers from the same kind of yes-man culture mm. that you said Vladimir 
Putin does, because Xi Jinping got rid of a lot of people it's in a, his government. Margaret, it's a concern in any authoritarian system. And I think what we've seen in Beijing is, is President Xi consolidating power at a very rapid pace over the course of the more than a decade that he's been in power as well. And as we've seen where Putin's hubris has now gotten Russia and the horrors that he's brought to the people of Ukraine, um, in that kind of a system, a very closed decision-making system, where nobody challenges, you know, the authority or the insights of an authoritarian leader, um, you can uh, make some huge blunders as well. You've said Xi Jinping told his military to be prepared to invade Taiwan by 2027. Um, the intel community seems a little bit more ambiguous in its conclusions here. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's an outright invasion, or do you think China's more likely to slowly strangle democracy in Taiwan. We need to take very seriously Xi's ambitions with regard to ultimately controlling Taiwan. That doesn't, however, in our view, uh, mean that a military conflict is inevitable. We do know, as has been made public, that President Xi has instructed the PLA, the Chinese military leadership, to be ready by 2027 to invade Taiwan. But that doesn't mean that he's decided uh, to invade in 2027 or any other right. year as well. I think our judgment, at least, is that President Xi and his military leadership have doubts today about whether they could accomplish that invasion. I think as they've looked at Putin's experience in Ukraine, that's probably reinforced some of those doubts as well. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you when the intelligence community will have some insight into what Beijing was collecting with that spy balloon over the U.S. It was clearly an intelligence platform, and I think we'll be able to develop a pretty clear picture of exactly what its capabilities were. But it'll be a while, won't it? It takes some time, but I think uh, my understanding is that we're managing to pull up quite a bit of evidence and material from that platform. Do you think Xi Jinping knew that balloon was sent here? I don't know. You have an idea. Well, I think the Chinese leadership obviously understood that they had launched this capability, um, that it was an intelligence platform. Whether, when, and what the Chinese leadership knew about the trajectory of this balloon, I honestly can't say. You've said in the past there's the beginnings of a full-fledged defense mm -hmm. partnership between Russia and Iran. Exactly how far does the alliance go? Well, it's moving um, at a pretty fast clip in a very dangerous direction right now in the sense that we know that the Iranians have already provided hundreds of armed drones to the Russians, which they're using to inflict pain on Ukrainian civilians and Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. We know that they've provided um, you know, ammunition for artillery and for tanks as well. And what we also see are signs that you know, Russia is proposing to help the Iranians on their missile program and also at least considering the possibility of providing fighter aircraft to Iran as well. So it's, you know, quite disturbing set of developments. Have Iran's leaders made the decision to pursue a nuclear weapon? Uh, to the best of our knowledge, we don't believe that the supreme leader in Iran has yet made a decision to resume the weaponization of program that we judge that they suspended or stopped at the end of 2003. But the other two legs of the stool, uh, meaning enrichment programs, they've obviously advanced very far. You 84% know, over the course purity, of the last couple of years. reportedly. 
they've advanced very far to the point where it would only be a matter of weeks before they could enrich to 90% if they chose to, to cross that line. And also in terms of their missile systems, their ability to deliver a nuclear weapon once they developed it has also been advancing as well. So the answer to your question is no, we don't see evidence that they made a decision to resume that weaponization program, but the other dimensions of this challenge, uh, I think, are growing at a worrisome pace, too. Our full conversation with Director Burns is on our website and our YouTube channel. Face the Nation will be back in one minute with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. So don't go away. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We're back with President George W. Bush's Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, who is the current director of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you here. It's awfully good to be with you, too. You know, uh, when you were Secretary of State, Bill Burns, CIA director, was U.S. ambassador to Moscow. That's correct. And, and later on, undersecretary for policy at the State Department when I was still at State. So, so you worked together yes. very closely. And I was reading his book recently where he was talking about your head-to-heads with Vladimir Putin, who didn't like you standing in high heels, apparently taller than he is. Um, but on the serious matter, what do you make of the Biden administration's policy, the choices it's making, and how they're using the CIA director as kind of the tip of the spear here? Well, I think in general, in total, the policy's in the right direction. You have to support Ukraine. Uh, you have to do it as much as you can as a part of a coalition. It's really important that the Europeans are on board. And I've been impressed with what they've been able to achieve with the Europeans in creating that uh, that unity. And in a sense, NATO's never been in better shape. Um, I do think, and look, it's a lot easier out here than it is in there, but I do think we sometimes seem to be a little bit behind in what we provide to the Ukrainians. Uh, so we were not going to provide air defenses and we, than we did. Uh, tanks and, and armor, and now we have. And so if I could say one thing, perhaps just to anticipate a little bit better what the Ukrainians are going to need, uh, because it takes a long time to supply. And as to mm -hmm. Bill Burns's role, uh, he's unique. Uh, I think he's walking a very fine line and doing a good job of it. He's an intelligence uh, chief at this point. But he has vast experience in Russia. He knows the Russians. They know him. And and so I think the signaling and the sending him to Moscow to talk with Narishkin, for instance, or uh, with Zelensky in Ukraine uh, makes perfectly good sense for this particular director of the CIA. When you talk about delivering weapons to Ukraine, you wrote an op-ed with uh, former Defense Secretary Bob Gates talking about this, saying have a dramatic increase in military supplies and capability. Does that mean 
train them yesterday on the F-16s they'll need tomorrow? Is that specifically the piece of weapon weaponry you're focused on? Well, we weren't talking about a specific set of weapon systems, but I think the idea that you anticipate and therefore perhaps you start the training uh, before it's going to be necessary to send that equipment. The one thing we know is that this war keeps evolving, yeah. and you try to have to you have to try to evolve a little bit ahead of it. So you think President Biden's being a little too hesitant? Well, I again I don't know internally. Uh, we we have issues with stockpiles. We have issues with uh, our own own defense uh, capabilities because I don't think anybody expected to be fighting a land war in Europe. Right. And so I have some sympathy for that. But uh, to the degree that that can be accelerated, I think it will help because I think we have to get away from the phrase time is on the Ukrainian side. Mm -hmm. um, I would be careful about that. Uh, Vladimir Putin seems to believe the time is not on the Ukrainian side. Uh, he believes if he throws in the Russian way of war, mass at the problem, uh, poor boys from Dagestan who are just kind of cannon fodder, if he engages in terrorist activities against the Ukrainian population, uh, he'll wear the Ukrainians down, he'll wear us down, he'll wear the Europeans down. I don't think that's right, but we have to do everything that we can to convince him that it is indeed wrong. Russia invaded Georgia in 2008. Yes. Um, at that time, uh, and I was reading these cables recently, you and Bill Burns were going back and forth on Ukraine joining NATO and whether that crosses that red line for Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Do you think now, after all these years of waiting, that Ukraine should be allowed into NATO? Well, that's going to be a hard lift uh, because of the Article 5, uh, an attack upon one is an attack upon all guarantee of NATO. And but no one I, wants to take that vote now. That's right. But I do think that what we've seen is that Ukraine is de facto now a very strong ally of NATO and vice versa. And I expect that's going to uh, continue because uh, I, I think some form of uh, security arrangements with, uh, with Ukraine will be necessary in the future. And it's probably good to start working on that now. Uh, what we do know is that uh, the that NATO itself uh, is protected. Mm -hmm. The piece of territory that was not protected was Ukraine. And that tells you something about leaving uh, a vacuum in the center of Europe. And so whatever we do, and I doubt it will be Article 5, we need to make sure that that vacuum isn't there in the future. Um, at this early stage of the 2024 presidential race, foreign policy is already yes. getting talked about a fair amount. Um, former President Trump criticized the amount of U.S. funding for Ukraine. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, widely expected to run, said the U.S. cannot provide Ukraine an open-ended blank check. They reject your point of view in many ways by saying the U.S. needs to kind of pull back here. Well, I'm not going to put words in the mouth of future presidential candidates. We'll see where they where they end up. But you I will. Ron DeSantis. Uh, right. But I will. <laughs> but I will say this: It is really important that whoever runs for president of the United States understands the essence of this conflict. The fact that we are defending not just Ukrainian independence, but we're defending a rule, we are defending a rules-based system that says might doesn't make right. You can't just extinguish your neighbor. And oh, by the way, for those who would say, oh, we ought to be concentrating on the Indo-Pacific because mm -hmm. China is really our adversary, uh, Xi Jinping is telling you what he thinks about that because uh, he is not only watching what is going on in Ukraine, according to uh, our intelligence, apparently, he's even considering getting in on the side of the Russians. Why do you think he would make that judgment? Why well, is it in his interest we to extend have, the we have, Yes, I think we have to recognize uh, that uh, the Chinese-Russian relationship is perhaps more strategic than many of us had thought. 
that it really is a relationship that is aimed at the heart of U.S. power in the world. And uh, that would say then uh, these two are not divisible. So if you want to say, let's just concentrate on the Indo-Pacific, mm -hmm. that's not going to work. And oh, by the way, many of our allies, Australia, Japan, uh, fundamentally understand that. Uh, so I, I would say to those who are going to run for office, uh, be careful what you say. And I would just make one other point. Um, if the American people see a world in which Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have won this mm -hmm. engagement, this first volley, if you will, in the larger strategic picture, and they see that Ukrainian independence has been extinguished, and they know that the United States could have done something about it, mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to be a very good message for a future president to have to deliver. Because that problem will come to his desk. Because that problem will come to his desk. Or her desk. Or her desk. Mm -hmm. And I just say, just remember yep. dates, 1914, 1941, 2001. These conflicts always come home. Sobering warning there. Um, you've said, though, for the Republican Party, they need new leadership, a new generation. Do you have a leader in mind? Uh, UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, for example? I, I think the Republican Party has a lot of very good prospects. Um, uh, when I say we need leadership, uh, new, new leadership, I'm not coming back either. So I think it's really time uh, for us to look at those who can, uh, can look at an American future. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot of very, very good candidates out there. Let's, let's uh, let everybody make their case and see where we, where we end up. Um, to that question I asked you earlier about why it would be in Xi Jinping's interest to have destabilization in Europe. Do you think it really is ultimately a long game for Taiwan, tie up the West in Europe so he can expand in the Pacific? Well, that's pretty precise. Um, I think this is really more about weakening uh, American power in the world. And one way that you do that, I, I don't think he would have chosen for Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine. It's, his intelligence didn't know. And it's become quite a mess as well. Uh, and your relationship without limits is with somebody who's causing all kinds of problems. But I think what we have to convince the uh, Chinese of is this is, first of all, not in their interest yeah. because his primary interest is to grow the Chinese economy against Headwinds that include, of course, a demographic disaster that yeah. they are having um, and strengthen Taiwan so that it's not an easy target. Yeah. It is not inevitable that uh, that the Chinese uh, win this battle. In fact, I will bet on American democracy, American innovation, American strengths. Mm -hmm. uh, but that isn't inevitable either that they will triumph. Secretary Rice, thank you for your analysis thank today. You. We'll be right back. A new bipartisan House Select Committee is putting a focus on the geopolitical threat from the Chinese Communist Party. Republican Mike Gallagher serves as the chairman, and Democrat Raja Krishnamurthy is the ranking member. We will talk with them both when we come back. If you can't watch the full Face the Nation, you can set your DVR or we're available on demand. Plus, you can watch us through our CBS or Paramount Plus app. And we're replayed on our CBS News streaming network throughout the day on Sundays at 1.30 p.m., 4 p.m., and 10 p.m. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. 
Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We're joined now by the two leaders of that new House Select Committee on China, Congressman Mike Gallagher and Raja Krishnamurthy. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You have your first hearing on Tuesday. What is the message you both hope to send with it? Well, first, let me say how excited I am to work with Ranking Member Krishnamurthy. He is a hopeless Bears fan, but he is smart and clear-eyed when it comes to the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. And in addition to elucidating that threat, I want to send a message that the committee's work is going to be bipartisan. Speaker McCarthy wants to be bipartisan, and I firmly believe that besides its own people, what the Chinese Communist Party fears most is the idea of Republicans and Democrats working together to counter CCP aggression. Mm-hmm. Well, the question is, can you maintain bipartisanship? <laughs> the vote to, to create the committee was bipartisan, concerns bipartisan, but this spy balloon incident, things got very political very fast. How do you manage that? Well, I, I echo uh, the chairman's sentiments, and though he is a Packers fan, I, I, I am glad to work with him. Um, look, I think that you're absolutely right that the spy balloon incident quickly became political. And, um, you know, unfortunately, some folks on the other side took it as an opportunity to bash the president uh, uh, with regard to the Chinese Communist Party, even though on the whole, I think he handled it very well. Um, Mike is right that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party likes nothing better than to have divisions between Democrats and Republicans. In fact, their chief political theorist, a guy named Mr. Wang Huning, has said that this is a huge weakness in America, that Democrats and Republicans don't get along. Mm -hmm. And so we have to get over that um, to be effective. So help me understand the purpose of this committee, because you have the House Foreign Affairs Committee, you have the Intelligence Committee. This committee was particularly focused, as I understand it, on the Communist Chinese Party threat, Mm. including here in the U.S. So what is the extent of the activities here in the U.S.? I know you, Congressman Gallagher, have been looking at police stations, Mm. Chinese police stations on U.S. soil. Well, I think the Chinese spy balloon incident uh, illustrates perfectly that this isn't just an over-there problem. This isn't just a matter of some obscure territorial claim in the East China Sea. This is a right-here-at-home problem. This is a threat to our sovereignty. So yesterday, uh, I went with uh, a a committee member, Democrat Richie Torres, to the site of one of these CCP police stations in the heart of New York being used to harass and surveil Chinese dissidents. We then met with a group of Chinese students on American campuses that have been subject to harassment and in some cases, physical assault. So we may call this a strategic competition, but it's not a tennis match. This is about what type of world we want to live in. Do we want to live in Xinjiang light or do we want to live in the free world where we're free from fear, free to speak our minds and free to choose our own future? Xinjiang, you're referring to where there are concentration camps for Muslim minorities in China. Um, When you talk about those police stations, 54 overseas police stations, according to the Spanish-based Human Rights Watchdog. So help me understand. I mean, the State Department says they don't like this. The FBI doesn't like this. How is that possible that this is on U.S. soil? 
Well, unfortunately, there are certain um, nonprofit organizations that the Chinese Communist Party has used to uh, try to do espionage and to crack down on Tibetans and Hong Kongers and Uyghur, and Uyghur activists. And we, I'm very living glad- Living in America. Living in America. In fact, my State of the Union guest was a Uyghur activist whose family has been imprisoned in China because she is speaking out against the genocide against Uyghurs in China. But one thing that I really want to bring uh, to everyone's attention is that uh, just at the same time that we are very concerned about the CCP going after Chinese origin people here, we have to make sure that in our conversations about Chinese origin people, we don't engage in any stereotyping mm -hmm. or questioning people's loyalty. Uh, one of my colleagues unfortunately attacked uh, Judy Chu, the first Chinese American congresswoman in the United States Congress, saying that somehow she's not loyal to the United States. I find that offensive as mm -hmm. an Asian American myself. And um, I want to hear Republicans also echo that sentiment that I just made, because we have to make sure that in our conversations in the committee, we stay out of xenophobia and we make sure that we mm -hmm. keep the focus on the Chinese Communist Party. In fact, um, this was a bipartisan agreement to create the committee, but House progressives voiced concerns because of what you just said. The vice chair of the Asian American caucus said they fear it'll feed into bigotry. So how do you stop your work from being distorted? Well, I, I'd like to say that I, I'm hoping that uh, the chairman will echo my sentiments with regard to Judy Chu and the mm -hmm. attack on her. We can't go that route. Again, the Chinese Communist Party loves it when we are internally fractious, and they like it when we mm -hmm. are stereotyping. Um, we have to avoid that, and we have to hold the Chinese Communist Party available, uh, uh, accountable for specific activities and deal with those. I think he asked you to call someone out. <laughs> well, let me say, we should not question anybody's loyalty to the United States. I think that is out of bounds. It's beyond the pale. If there are concerns about a specific organization, and as a matter of fact, the China Council for the Promotion of Peaceful Reunification is, in, is tied directly subordinate to the United Front Work Department at the CCP, then we should work with our colleagues to apprise them that they might be targets for CCP United Front Work, CCP influence. Mm -hmm. As a former counterintelligence officer, I can tell you we are a soft target in Congress, but absolutely. We shouldn't question anybody's loyalty. And going forward, I think what's critical, and the reason we actually got the committee renamed to focus on the Chinese Communist Party, is to constantly make that distinction between yeah. the party and the people. And the people are often the primary victims of the CCP's aggression and repression. So I read in the National Review <laughs> that you are going to require all of those testifying to disclose foreign ties, not just to the Chinese Communist Party, but um, given how extensive the ties are in the business community, that there is really no difference, according to U.S. intelligence, between the state uh, and the Chinese um, business community, everyone's going to have to disclose this. I mean, how do you reassure people that this doesn't steer into Joseph McCarthy territory? Well, I, Joseph McCarthy's from my district. He's buried <laughs> in my district. We need not exhume his body and reanimate it. Uh, and I've written to the extent of we must constantly be aware of going uh, overboard uh, as we try and win this competition. Uh, with China. Uh, that being said, there are disclosure requirements similar to that for most committees for testifying. Our bar is slightly higher given the nature of our work. I'm confident we can work through the complexity, but you're right. I think what makes this competition more complex in many ways than the old Cold War is we never had to contemplate selective economic decoupling with the Soviet Union because our economies didn't interact. This, in my mind, as sort of a military guy, is the most difficult 
area of competition. But we have to safeguard our own economy and make sure that we're not unwittingly financing genocide or PLA modernization. The PLA is the, the Chinese military. So is it true you're calling in the NBA commissioner to testify? Uh, we're hoping to have a conversation first with the NBA, with Disney, other companies that uh, my constituents and others have voiced concern over. We haven't issued any uh, announcement about hearings besides the one we're having on Tuesday night. But I think we can have a productive conversation with companies that have substantial business interest in China. And we want to make sure that the power of the Chinese economy is not seducing certain companies into betraying American values. I, I, can I just jump in? And you have in? subpoena power. We do. Will you use it for corporations? If we need to. I think if we want someone to testify and we believe their presence is essential to the committee function, okay. I want to do it in a bipartisan fashion. Okay. Okay. I think at the heart of this committee, we do not have a quarrel with the people of China. Yeah. The, the differences that we have are with the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. And indeed, many of our businesses have ties with mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese economy. We're some of the most intertwined economies in the world. The, the challenge for our committee, indeed our country, is how do we continue to engage uh, the People's Republic of China, but at the same time protect ourselves, our values, our interests, right. and our alliances with our partners and friends and, and, and others in the re Indo-Pacific region. And I imagine your issues with Disney and the NBA have to do with things like changing messages to censor things that can't be said that are critical? Is that it? Sure. Well, the NBA incident, I think, caught a lot of attention because here you had a, an NBA executive who merely tweeted support for Hong yeah. Kong protesters. And remember, these people in many cases were out in the streets waving American flags. So they looked to us for leadership. And then the NBA quickly moved to silence that. So we just want to make sure that American companies are acting like Americans and embracing American values like like free speech and plurality and and things like that. So that's that's the concern. Uh, Congressman uh, Christian Borthy, um, I know that when you got back, Congressman Gallagher from Taiwan, you issued a statement that was pretty scathing in terms of a backlog, you said, of weapons to Taiwan. Um, do you consider there to be sl slowness on the part of the administration or is this more of an issue with private industry um, just having such supply chain constraints right now. I think it's a little bit of the latter. I think under the Biden administration and on a bipartisan basis in Congress, under the National Defense Authorization Act from the last Congress, we, did, we took unprecedented steps to provide uh, additional armaments under the Taiwan Relations Act, mm -hmm. under which we are obligated to provide articles of defense to Taiwan. But we need to do more. Because what we know is that the CCP, as you said in your last interview with uh, uh, CIA Director Burns, uh, is wants to have the capability to successfully invade Taiwan by 2027, if not sooner. Mm -hmm. So that means we have to arm or help supply Taiwan's defense uh, even more rapidly than we are right now. For instance, by working with private industry to unwind supply chains, introduce more com competition uh, into, the, into the mix to allow for smaller businesses and entities to provide more agile yeah. and nimble supplies of armaments. But the bottom line is we've got to hustle uh, because at the end of the day, we want to discourage and deter aggression on the part of the CCP. So you're, you're saying your intentions here are um, coming from a genuine place. The concern for poly policymakers sometimes is that they get boxed in by politics. <laughs> sure. You know this. And everyone running for president in 2024 is going to vow to be tough on China. So how do you how do you actually get something done in a space that's going to become really, really hot? 
Well, I think we can identify uh, sort of the bipartisan center of gravity on China. Listen, we're not naive. We're not going to agree on 100 percent of everything. And there's going to be meaningful disagreements within all the 2024 contenders. But I want both sides in some way to look to the committee as the area for the most forward-leaning, innovative, and bipartisan policy and legislation on China. And I think there are things we can do. When it comes to clearing the backlog, that's a bipartisan issue. It predates the Biden administration, to be sure. But I emphatically agree with what Raj said about if we want to prevent another collapse of deterrence across the Taiwan Strait, then we should be working to give Taiwan the resources and asymmetric Mm -hmm. weapons they need to defend themselves. So I think we can be effective in that regard. So two questions. You want to hold a hearing in Taiwan, I read. (laughs) Is that going to happen? And can you get TikTok banned as you both are trying to do? Who goes first? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be it, technically you could do a field hearing in a, in a foreign country. So, uh, you know, I, I've been to Taiwan. I think it's valuable for members to go there. I'm hoping to uh, bring a bipartisan group at the, at the appropriate time. Um, and perhaps we could do a, a field hearing in Guam on the way back. Uh, but again, we have our first hearing on Tuesday. We're going to pass rules the morning of. So we got to crawl a little bit, then walk, and then maybe we can run with our, our fancy field hearings afterwards. Is this the year TikTok gets banned? Um, I don't think it's going to get banned. I think what we're asking for is, you know, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, a Chinese company that's required to provide its user data, including on the 140 million Americans, as well as control of algorithms mm-hmm. to the Chinese Communist Party upon request. All we're saying is if TikTok is going to operate here, don't have that user data and algorithms controlled by an adversarial regime. Understood. We'll be watching your hearing on Tuesday. Thank you very much. Thank you. you. Gentlemen, we'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The investigation of former President Trump in Fulton County, Georgia, took a strange turn last week. And Mr. Trump's lawyers now argue it could impact a possible trial. At the center of the controversy, Emily Coors, the forewoman for the special grand jury that investigated alleged election interference in Georgia by Trump and his allies. Coors gave several interviews in which she hinted that more than a dozen key players, perhaps even the former president, might have been recommended for indictments. Now, special grand juries can't indict, but that recommendation could prompt the district attorney to create a criminal grand jury. The judge overseeing the case told CNN last week that although the deliberations are confidential, quote, what witnesses said, what you put in the report, those are not off limits to those on the jury. The attorneys for President Trump in the Georgia case had not given an interview to any TV network, but the Coors media tour prompted them to talk to our Robert Costa. 
I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump. Did you recommend charges against Donald Trump? I really don't want to share something that the judge made a conscious decision not to share. Could Emily Coors' public disclosures jeopardize the case that could be brought by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis? Coors is part of a special purpose grand jury that heard months of testimony from more than 75 witnesses about alleged Republican efforts to pressure state officials like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to overturn President Biden's victory in Georgia. Look, Brad, I got to get I have to find 12,000 votes and I have them. Coors suggested the special grand jury submitted a report to Willis last month that recommended multiple indictments on a range of charges. But Willis has yet to decide whether or not to convene a criminal grand jury that could issue indictments against some Trump allies and even the former president himself. Drew Finley and Jennifer Little head up the former president's legal team in the Georgia case. They say that Emily Coors's media tour has tainted any attempt by District Attorney Willis to move toward charging Trump. What are your options? Are the results of that special purpose grand jury to be crumbled up like a piece of paper and thrown into a waste paper basket? Um, our options are, can this district attorney's office continue to be part of this case? We have to legally research all of those issues. Have you lost confidence in the district attorney? We've lost 100% confidence in this process. We feel this process has been compromised. Emily Coors, they say, is not to blame. This 30-year-old foreperson to us has actually provided us a lens and made us aware that every suspicion we had as to this questionable process was in fact a reality. But you she didn't break any rules though, right? She may have break, broken a norm, but the grand jury was over by the time she went on this media tour, yeah. as you put it. So what did she do wrong in your view legally? We have no chagrin towards this four person. And it looks like they lost perspective over keeping separation between prosecuting attorneys and the members of this grand jury. There cannot be a relationship. When the four person uses the word we, that lets you know there's a relationship there. When she says in interviews, certain battles were not worth us battling, it's not the special purpose grand jury that's litigating, it's the district attorney's office. She said and it wouldn't be worth the battle they decided to call your client in, former President Trump in as a witness. That's the and, public and, statement she made. Right, and, and who knows what that is based on. He wasn't called in the special grand jury part of this investigation. Did that surprise you? And if he was called, would you have fought that subpoena? I'm not gonna speak to what our legal decisions would have been, um, but it was surprising. And particularly once we heard the reasons why he wasn't called. Um, when we had our foreperson of this grand jury speaking about how excited and cool it would have been to be able to look at Donald Trump, the former president of the United States for 60 seconds, um, but that they just determined that given the resources and the other witnesses that they had heard of, that they just didn't need to have any more evidence at that point. Um, it's concerning that that was the level of diligence that was shown in that decision, and it was surprising, frankly. If former President Trump is indicted, Willis can certainly expect a legal battle from Trump's lawyers. 
We absolutely do not believe that our client did anything wrong. And if any indictments were to come down, those are faulty indictments. We will absolutely fight anything tooth and nail. Willis and the district attorney's office declined to comment. For Face the Nation, Robert Costa, Atlanta. And we'll be right back. Friday marked one year of the war in Ukraine, a sobering day around the world. Our Charlie Daggett was in Ukraine when the war started, and he filed this report from Ukraine for us. It's up to you. I was thinking that this is the front line. We're taken to an unspecified front line position north of Bakhmut. Two things about Ukrainian soldiers. They're really sensitive about sharing locations for obvious reasons, and they really don't want us to get hurt. Friends, 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 friendly fire. No. Some incoming, some outgoing. What do you want to do? This is the front line. I know. Stay close to the building, they tell us. Split up. Russian mortar teams aim for people in clusters. One of the soldiers was a mortar guy himself and said if he was on the other side, he would have already launched a volley at us by now. So we hurry to get on with the job. Okay, let's try one. The sound of explosions has been non-stop, both outgoing and incoming. This is the last Ukrainian-held village before the Russian front line about three miles in that direction. Commanders tell us the front line has only moved a few hundred yards in the past couple of months. In some cases, the soldiers are holding off the Russians using no more than automatic weapons. This is what a stalemate looks and sounds like. We need to wrap soon. Really? Yeah. Is it getting that hot? They're, they're really worried. The explosions haven't stopped the entire time that we've been here. Is it always like this? Uh, always. Always. If it feels like the world is growing weary of this senseless war after a year of fighting, imagine how Ukrainians feel. We were here when the invasion began, when the capital itself was coming under attack. And each time we've returned, we've been shocked by the staggering and growing toll of the war. Even in virtual ghost towns like Stargy Saltiv in eastern Ukraine, the few residents who remain still manage a kind of life, sustained largely with the help of volunteers, food, and aid from around the world. Raisa Fativa survived the Russian occupation and the months of bombardment that followed when they pulled out and pummeled the neighborhoods. So this is when it began. This, this is the occupation. The, the. So May, June, July, August, September. The, the. Getting aid to the other side of the river is more difficult. The Ukrainians blew up the bridge, forcing the Russian retreat. This temporary pedestrian bridge will do for now. They don't want to allow vehicles to cross in case the Russians try to come back. The sheer sadness and unnecessary suffering can be overwhelming. Just over a year ago, most of this country was at peace. Overnight, the entire country was at war. A brutal war with no end in sight. Charlie Daggett reporting from Ukraine. We'll be right back. 
The cleanup continues following that toxic train derailment that happened more than three weeks ago, but the EPA has ordered railroad operator Norfolk Southern to pause shipments of hazardous waste out of East Palestine. They will eventually resume, but under the oversight of the EPA. Meanwhile, CDC is on the ground as concerns linger about any long-term health effects from chemical exposure. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were CIA Director Bill Burns, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, the leaders of the new House Select Committee on China, Republican Mike Gallagher, and Democrat Raja Krishnamurthy. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.